So, uh, okay, here's, I got an update on the trees. If you're new here, we got this ongoing saga of our trees because they look like they're dead. We had a tree guy come in this morning to the place where we got our trees, and he came in and said they're actually coming back. There's new growth on both of them. Woo! We just got to live through the way they look right now. I'm sure Luke at some point is going to want to pull those out and whack people with them because they're like, you know, Japanese sticks of some sort. Uh, if you are new to Element and you've been coming for just a little bit, or maybe longer, but don't really know a whole lot of people, we're going to do a new to ECC party. Uh, in the back, right through those doors, there's a sign up on that. We haven't picked the date. It's going to be in March sometime, either a Friday night or a Saturday. And, you know, my wife and I'll be there. Some of the deacons and elders will be there. And you can come if you'd like and ask us any questions you want. We can hang out and talk and crack jokes and we can, you can make fun of me all you want. I really don't care. And it'll be a great time to get to know each other. So if you would like to do that, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. You should come, get to know us. Maybe you'll run away screaming because we're just so weird. Uh, as part uh, To become a member at Element, uh, we are a church that actually has a, a membership. And we do that because when people become members, we believe that the members of Element are the main body of ministers. Uh, we are what is called a missional church. We believe that every single person alive that calls themselves a believer is supposed to be living as a missionary in the culture where you're at. For most of us, you know, that means that we live in Santa Maria or some suburb of such of Santa Maria, and we live here and we, we dress the way our culture, we eat the food our culture does, we, we, we dress and eat and watch sometimes the same TV shows they do, and we connect and interact with this culture. So we are a missionary in the culture in which we live. Missionaries are not just people that are sent overseas to, you know, God knows where that eats all kinds of nasty food. We are all missionaries. We are all called to live a certain way. And so we believe that the main body of ministers at Element are actually the members. And so we do a membership class. Our membership class is actually seven weeks long. And there are certain basic things that we think people who call themselves believers or members of Element and call themselves believers should know. And so basically, through the seven-week class, you're going to get some basic theology. Uh, you're gonna, we're going to start off the first week, uh, cover scripture. Uh, why we got, how we got scriptures, the scriptures the way we did, why we trust them as authoritative. Why if you read the Da Vinci Code, it's full of garbage because he doesn't know history. You know, it's, it's the, the scriptures, why we got them, why we trust them, why we use them as the rule for our life and faith. And so our, that's our first week. The second week is all about God. The third week's about creation and sin. The fourth week's about salvation. And we talk about, uh, gifts. The, the very last week we talk about what a missional church actually is. And so it's a seven-week class. You can come. We go through this. You can ask any questions you want as we go through it. You know, maybe some stuff will come up. Maybe you've got some questions that you've never had answered, but you thought, this is a good one. We'll bring that with you. Uh, you don't have to even want to become a member to go to the class. You can just come and, and hang out for it because we just like having you there. Uh, if you have people that aren't Christians that are friends of yours and they don't know anything about Christianity, you can bring them with you too, and we'll talk to them. Well, this is a long intro for this thing. So uh, March 2nd, uh, we're going to do it on Monday nights. We've been doing it almost... I try to pick a different night each time we do it. So this one's going to be on Monday, start at 6 p.m., so that I can get to my softball game and not miss the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you got to have somebody that's like comic relief on the field, right? That's, like, won the, uh, that's right, that's right, I did. So anyway, uh, uh, you don't sign up for it, you can just show up. It'll be here uh, March 2nd, 6 p.m., that Monday night is where it starts. I'll remind you every week until we actually start it. Uh, if you miss one or can't even make the first one, you can go to our website. You can download the actual message of it and listen to it and then come to the next one if you need to miss one. Lastly, and this, this is just so bizarre. I don't even know why I'm telling half you guys this, but apparently somebody asked me to and I said, okay. Um, somebody from Element that, that comes here went to Coffee Diem, which is the coffee shop that's up here on Betteravia, right? 
used to be, yeah, used to be uh, Hunter's Landing, right? There, apparently, there's an anchor out front, okay? And somebody that goes here went there and said, hi, I'm from Element. Can I have the anchor? Because I guess they're getting rid of it. And so I got an email this week from somebody that said, so whoever it was, we don't know, they went there and said, you can have the anchor if it was you. You can go and get, go get your anchor, whoever it was. Have at it, okay? Seriously. Why do I waste it? I don't know. Whatever. Okay, stay on me. Reading of God's Word. We'll get started here. This is Psalm 25, verse 11, and it says this, For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would understand not only your forgiveness, but what we have been brought out of. God, the, the things that you have forgiven us from, and so we would understand how great your love is for us, and ultimately how great your love is for everyone around us. And so we should be living in the way that shows people that. Help us to truly be your people. Amen. Have a seat. If you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 8. Actually, it's John 7.53 to be more precise, but John chapter 8. Uh, we're going through the book of John. If you're new here, welcome. Um, We've been going the book of John for some weeks now. If you missed any of the messages on John, you can go to our website, ourelement.org. You can download any of them. They're all free. You get what you pay for. Just be aware of that as you start to download it. Uh, most of you in John 8 or 753 has this little footnote, and this footnote says this is not in the earliest manuscripts. Does everybody see that in your Bible? Okay, I'm going to give you a little history of that and explain what that means. But this, this story that we're covering today is a story of a woman caught in adultery. What I find amazing is that this story, which says it's not in most of the original manuscripts, is depicted in almost every single Jesus movie ever made. Even The Passion, which is the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, Mel Gibson found a way to take this story and put it into the movie. It, well, I think it's interesting, but whatever. Okay. Uh, there's a debate among Johannian scholars as to where this actually belongs in the Bible. So I'll give you some history, and then we can proceed. Isaiah 55.9 says... As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is God talking to you and I. God is so much higher than us that it is impossible for us to try and figure him out. Though people have tried. You go into sleep deprivation tanks or uh, sensory deprivation tanks and they take drugs or science or theology. Everybody's trying to figure out who God is. But it is impossible for us to figure God out. So God must reveal himself to us. And he does this mainly through the scriptures. It's why when we go through the gospel class, the, the first week we discuss the scriptures and why we can trust the scriptures that we have, how they came to us. And the Bibles that you guys have in your hands can be trusted. Why we do that? Because it's very important. Because if you figure scripture, you've got to figure out then what does scripture say about God and us and, and all everything else that comes after that. God reveals himself to one of his servants. And then one of these servants takes them and begin to write down what God says. And so as they write, they write this down, God says these things, it goes down. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is God-breathed. That's the idea, that God has actually breathed his scripture. They are his words. Not just that it's alive, but they are actually his words. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.20 and 21, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So you have revelation. God reveals himself. He inspires these people. They write this down. And after these guys write this down, other people hear about it. God spoke. Well, what did God say? I want to know what God said. So they begin to transmit that. They make copies, and they can get those up to other people, so other people can read what God said. 
then other people in other languages want to know what God said. And so you translate that into languages of unknown people. And then with the translation, we take and we interpret and we apply it to apply it to our lives so we know how to live out the scriptures. And it all starts with God's thoughts written down by his servants. Now, some people come and they say, well, we shouldn't trust the manuscripts or the copies because they're copies. We, we can't trust those. We call these people New York Times bestsellers on the fiction list is who these people are. Any, anybody have a book at home? Any book whatsoever? What's this on? Anybody, have a book? anybody got a book? Everybody got a book, right? Some book of some sort at home. Anybody ever bought a car? You got a manual in the glove box? Okay, everybody got a book. Okay, that's as good. That's a copy. That's a copy. Nobody, nobody has to. Everybody reads off of copies. Harry Potter is like, you know, like one of the best-selling books like ever. Every single Harry Potter book sold copy. Okay, it's all copies. The Old and New Testament rabbis, they would teach off of copies. Jesus taught off of copies, and he treated it as authoritative, and so should we. The section we look at today does not show up in the earliest manuscripts. It appears in the 200s. Uh, so people wonder, well, should it be there? Why don't the early texts show it? You know, why, you know, why is, do we even go in and, and put it back in? Why do we include that? I'll give you two explanations. The first one is this. There's a guy named Jerome. Uh, Jerome was an early church father. He was one of the first Bible translators. He takes Hebrew and Greek. And what he does, he creates out of these a, a translation called the Latin Vulgate. Now, this Latin Vulgate was, was a translation for the people of the day so they could, they could read it in Latin. Latin's taking over the world. Not, I'm going to be really unpolitically correct here, but just to say this, it's kind of like how Spanish takes over California and the bottom half of the United States. It's that kind of thing. You take it, you translate it so they can read it in their own language. So he makes this translation. The actual the King James Version of the Bible is translated out of the Latin Vulgate. Uh, if you have an NIV or a New American Standard or an uh, English Standard Version, those are actually translated out of Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and so it's actually a little better of a translation. But Jerome, when he makes his translation between 382 and 400, he included this section in his translation, probably because he believed it was a truthful portrayal of an event that did occur. Uh, there, is, there is no debated doctrine in this. There's no contention. It's completely in line with the character of Christ. The second one is this. You have Augustine, also an earlier church father. He infers that in the early church, there it was a lot of adultery. Now, you, you have the Roman Empire. Okay, The Roman Empire is pretty pagan. Uh, I know some of you are like, I'd love to live in the Roman Empire. And that's because you went to a frat party with a toga. That's not the Roman Empire. Okay? The, the Roman Empire is, is completely, I mean, completely pagan. And so there's people who are married, and they, it was almost natural that you're going to be sleeping, doing somebody else, you know. And, and so the church comes along, it's taken over the Roman Empire, and it's a slow ship to turn. And so they come in, and it's like, hey, you're committing adultery. Don't do that. And some people, Augustine and First, would look at this section of Scripture and go, oh, well, Jesus said it was okay. And rather than going, no, that's not what Jesus said, some copyists began to take it out because they didn't want to have to deal with the issue. And then later they realized, oh, I guess we shouldn't really jack with Scripture and we should interpret it right, and they put it back in. Now, all this to say that I actually think this section should be in there. Uh, I think, again, some people pulled it out and then realized, oh, we shouldn't do that, and they put it back in. So here we go uh, with the section. That, well, I'm going to be. Pra- this is very practical today. Very practical. I will try and slow down to go through it a little slower. This is about adultery and judgment and being caught in the act. In the act, uh, people in in our society, even today, they get lost. They get they get hurt a lot. They some people get dumped. Uh, they get fired. Uh, they they get chewed out. And most of the lifelines that we will begin to offer to other people are the words that we share. In Romans 15, 7, Paul says, Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. 
Well, what does it mean to accept somebody? Does it mean we accept the sin? Well, well, no. But accepting somebody is to recognize that it's a very good thing that they are alive. God created them for a purpose. And it's a good thing they are alive. When someone accepts you, you know how that feels. You're like, yeah, I, you, you know that feeling. Acceptance means you want the best for someone's soul no matter what they've done. You want the best. And so John 8 is the story. You get, a, you get three groups of people in here. You get one who is this group of men who are supposed to offer these words of hope out of the scriptures. They are teachers of the law. So they're supposed to offer these words of hope and healing to, to bring people to the place they're supposed to be. But they forgot that in wanting just to kill and go after Jesus. You have a second, second person in the story. It's the story of a woman who maybe at one time in her life was an excited bride. You know, she has a, maybe has a husband who really loves her, probably dreams of, of raising a family someday. But maybe things don't turn out the way that she plans. You know, it's her fault. She makes some decisions. It could be a little bit of her husband's for pushing her in a bad direction. It could be both. But she meets another man that notices her, that says words to her, that speaks into her. And it's the third it's the story of Jesus, who is always the hero of the story, and Jesus who keeps searching for what he treasures most, and that is his people. Words are a very powerful thing for people with broken hearts. Uh, Deborah Tennant, she writes this. She says, My great aunt, for many years a widow, fell in love when she was in her 70s. Obese, balding, her hands and legs misshapen by arthritis, she did not fit the stereotype of a woman romantically loved. But she was, by a man also in his 70s who lived in a nursing home. In trying to tell me what this relationship meant to her, my great aunt told of a conversation. One evening she had had dinner out with her friends. When she returned home, her male friend called. She told him about the dinner. He listened with interest and asked her, What did you wear? When she told me this, she began to cry. Do you know how many years it's been since anyone asked me what I wore? I mean, these, these are words, lifelines, love. Do you see how these... This woman in the story today, maybe she found a man who seemed to care, who said, what, what did you wear? I'm, I'm really interested. Could have started innocent until she crosses the line. Maybe there's a touch, and that touch lingers just a little bit too long. Maybe there's a sharing of a secret she shouldn't share. Maybe there's a, there's a confidence with their spouse that, this, that she just shares with this other person. And maybe she doesn't notice, but, but she chooses to do certain things. Things. And she started, I think at that point, she maybe starts to cross other lines as well until it becomes a full-blown affair in her life. And as long as this affair remains a secret, then she can live in two different worlds. When she's in one, she doesn't have to really pretend or, or think about the other one. It's like, oh, that doesn't really exist. And she doesn't have to think about what this is going to do to her kids. She doesn't have to think about what this is going to do to her family, uh, to the church or temple that, that, that she attends. She doesn't think of how this is going to damage her soul. But it was because sin unchecked always leads to more sin. She probably used to be a, a truthful person. You know, and then the first time she lied to her husband about, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? When are you going to be back? And, and she lies. She says, oh, I'm doing this or that. And maybe he goes, are you sure? And she probably thinks, oh, he knows. I'm found out. But he didn't. So she continues to lie. And then she begins to become very hard to the lies because she becomes a liar. Maybe the first time after she goes to church or to temple after she commits adultery. She's sure everybody can see the guilt. God's going to send a lightning bolt down and str hope nobody's sitting too close because, boom, we're all gone because God's going to send a lightning bolt and we're all just done. But none came. None comes. So now she probably doesn't think about God very much at all either. She's become a hypocrite. She doesn't notice what is really happening to her soul. And then there's this fateful night. You don't know how many times she's been with this guy, but she is with the man. And the door swings wide open, and there are men waiting outside. They are watching. And she screams. She probably begs for mercy. She cries out. 
She wishes she can go back to the very first time she crossed that first line and say, man, I, I don't want to stop. Don't do this. This is only leading to bad places. But she can't. It's, it's a lot actually like the fall in, in Adam and Eve. Because in the fall, as soon as God shows them, they, 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 they realize they're naked and, and they're sin. And I think as soon as these guys bust in, she realizes her eyes are open like Adam and Eve. She is naked like Adam and Eve. She is ashamed like Adam and Eve. She wants to hide just like Adam and Eve. I mean, but she probably also realizes why she is there because she chose this, this life. She's not a victim. She made the choices that led to this. And she'd probably commit suicide right now if she could get away with it. But they won't let her. They bundle her up probably in the sheets that she was in. And then they take her to Jesus. Jesus is teaching at this point, teaching some people. And usually what you'll see sometimes is, is people will carry their friends to Jesus so that Jesus will heal them. Some guys come on mats. Well, she doesn't come on a mat. She comes on a sheet. And these men are not her friends. They are her enemies. And they're not here to heal her. They are here to kill her. And I think what John wants you to see is that this is not a private conversation between two people about you know, uplifting and, and building things up and living the right way. This is a public humiliation because it is Jesus that these guys are after. So John 7.53, that's my introduction. <laughs> here we go. John 7.53. Then each went to his own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Middle Eastern culture, this is a good arrangement. Teachers get to sit down. Everybody else stands or sits or whatever. Okay. For me, it would be, be nice. Uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the act. I mean, the Jewish law is clear about caught in the act and, and what that means. One witness is not enough to convict somebody, so you have to have two to three witnesses. They must be brought forward. This means these guys had to wait and watch to see what was going to happen. This is cold-blooded premeditation. This tells a contempt for the woman, but also contempt for Jesus. The guy, he's not brought there. You know, this could be fair. Maybe it went on for a while, and some people find out, and they go, okay, we're going to let you go, but next time you let us know what's happening because we want the woman because we want Jesus. And so they let this guy go. The woman gets, you know, the guy gets away. Women were worthless. She's caught red-handed. The law is clear. Jesus, what do you say? She's caught. And these guys are sitting there, stones in their hands, waiting for Jesus to say, yeah, kill her. I mean, this, this is the deal. In, in the law, you killed somebody like this by stoning them. That means you threw rocks. You didn't like let them smoke pot till they died. You threw rocks or, or pebbles or stones at somebody until they died. Now, anybody, I, I grew up not a lot of money, and so we grew up uh, having dirt clod fights when I was a kid. Anybody have dirt clod fights as a kid? Okay. What's the number one rule of a dirt clod fight? No rocks. Why? Because they hurt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's how you would die stoning rocks at you till you were dead. And that's what these guys are waiting for. They're waiting for Jesus just to say, go. They have stones ready. And here's the question for you and I. Have your hands ever held a stone? Have you ever held a stone? See, Christian theologians have divided sin into like these two categories. You have what's called sins of the flesh. These are appetites that are completely out of control. This is like lust and greed and gluttony and drunkenness because our flesh, given enough time, will make an idol out of anything from cars to donuts to porn to TV. Um, American Idol, you know, got this show. Anybody seen American? Ever heard of it? Okay. All right. And, and on American Idol, there's this guy. He's is like this prepubescent boy named David Archuleta. And there's this girl in like the third row every week. And she's like... Every time he sings, I mean, she's made this guy into a god. It's like, I, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. 
Idols always lead to more sin. Like lust will lead to deceit because you will lie about what you're doing or what you're looking at or where you're going. And greed leads to betrayal because money becomes your God. And so you'll betray everybody else. Gluttony, drunkenness, laziness, they lead to despair. Sins of the flesh. And then you have sins of the spirit. These have left less to do with biology, more to do with our soul. This is like pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and judgmentalism. They don't provoke as much gossip as you know, sins of the flesh, but they're just as deadly because they're overlooked. You know, if a pastor leaves a church for moral reasons, it's usually not because they were arrogant, right? It's usually for something, yeah, bad. Churches are not scandalized by arrogance, although I think they're known by it. But Jesus was scandalized by it. Jesus hated self-righteousness and this hypocrisy and this pride and this arrogance and this judgmentalism. If you read through some of the stories in Scripture, you're like, you'll see the stories of like a prodigal son. And he, and he leaves and squanders his dad's money on wild living. And, and then he, and he comes back, you have a woman who is sinful, and she cries on Jesus' feet, and she anoints her, his, his feet with her hair, and, or with her tears, and then wipes it down with her hair. And you see this woman in the story. But people with sins of the flesh, when they get busted, they know they're in big trouble because it's there for everybody to see. But you have sins of the Spirit. And we think that we can go around with these sins of the Spirit inside of us, and we think it's possible to love God and yet despise people, and no one sees it. Nobody really calls us on it. People with sins of the Spirit, they, they act like they're very holy and very religious, but sin cripples the ability for us to love others, which almost makes sins of the Spirit the most destructive of all. We're scandalized by sins of the, sins of the flesh, but Jesus was scandalized by sins of the Spirit. C.S. Lewis writes this, says, the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing. The pleasures of power and of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self, that's flesh, and the, the diabolical self, that's spirit. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. I mean, do you think that when these guys started out to learn, you know, Moses and the law, they started the pursuit to be a teacher of the law, they were filled with hatred and malice. Do you think they were like, I'm going to study Moses because that will help me really condemn people better? No, they didn't. You know, they were motivated by love. They wanted to learn. They wanted to know about God and, and, and the precepts for their lives. But their learning began to fill them with pride. Their lifestyle, because they, they followed God and, and, and they lived differently, all of a sudden it made them have contempt for those who were weaker and didn't live the same way that they were living. It's kind of like this. Um, have you ever driven South Central Los Angeles? Okay. You're driving up in South Central Los Angeles, you will drive by a crack hoe. Okay? And, and when you do, it's like, you know, you, you can't miss them. And you got a light, you're like, oh, dear God, please let them knock on my window. And what's the first thing we do with a crack hoe? We go, oh, it's a crack hoe. Right? And, we, and we're like, dear God. And, and we don't even think twice about, you know what? Jesus wants the best for this person's soul as well. We just think, please, God, don't let him knock on my window. You know? <laughs> not, that you, not that you would give him money because they go by crack and that's not good. But we don't even think twice as we leave. We just think, thank God I'm out of there. We don't even think twice about saying, God wants the best for this person's soul as well. See, people with sins of the Spirit, sometimes we don't even have a clue that they're there. And yet we go through life with a stone in hand. I will be totally honest with you. Uh, this is me. Sometimes I don't even notice it. And I, I, I have judgmental thoughts. I drive by some of the homeless guys on the side of the road, and I'm like, you know, give me money for food. They don't want money for, they want money for beer. You should get a job and go buy your own beer if you want beer. And, and, almost, I, and my thoughts don't even think of, Jesus wants the best of this. I just think, 
homeless guy with a sign, go do something else. You know, I, I, get, I get judgmental thoughts. You know, I, I, I have a superior attitude. I think I'm better than that person. Well, I got a job. I'm driving a car. I work really hard. You know, I have friends who work really hard, and all of a sudden, you know, this guy's probably making more money than my friends working really hard at their jobs. I got impatient words. I, I have bitter resentment. If we see people and we are not moved to compassion, we are not about wanting the best for someone's soul. We are all here. I mean, do you ever wonder why it seems like so many churches produce people who are stone throwers? I think a lot of churches, they don't really laugh that much, unless it's really like at other people. A lot of churches, they, they just live in pride a lot. You know, they don't have joy unless it's in passing judgment on other people. I, I, I love to do weddings, okay? Weddings, weddings are so much fun. I, you can go to and, and do a wedding and totally mess it up. I mean, one time I go, seriously, and everybody's happy because it's a, it's a happy day. I, I went and did this wedding one time, and uh, I, was, uh, I, had, I was really sick. I had a cold. One of my friends goes, hey, here, take this cold medicine. Did not realize it was prescription cold medicine. So I show up to this wedding, and I'm just doped up. And I show up, and I'm, we're like doing the wedding, and I'm like, Woo, and I say the, the wrong name for the bride. Because you know, I'm just like, woo, you know, everybody's cool. You know what's fine? It's like, I can't remember what her name was. And she goes, and I go, what? And she goes, and I go, and I say it, you know. <laughs> But I, sorry, you screw up a wedding, it's okay. Everybody's happy. It's it's a happy day, right? You screw up a funeral, it's just over, okay? Because you can't talk to them the next day and go, dude, I'm really sorry, you know, because it, it it doesn't work like that. So I was doing this wedding uh, in Napomo a while ago, up in the up in the foothills, and and it, it was this couple. They somebody knew me that knew them and said, hey, will you do their wedding? I said, sure. Uh, they said, because if you don't, if I don't do it, they're going to go adjust to the piece. And I go, oh, no, no, no. And so I got to meet with them once before the wedding because I like to meet with people because if they ever have a problem, they come back and talk to me. And hopefully, you know, don't just give up on this. This, this is a sacred union. Let, let's find a way to work through some of your issues. So I got to meet with them. And so I show up to, to do this wedding. And they're, they're all like, you know, cowboyed out. I was going to say redneck, but that's just kind of offensive. So they're, they're you know, they're all kind of cowboyed out. And so I show up for the wedding. And they're just, by the, by the truckload, they're, they're unloading uh, cases of Bud Light. Just tell you how this is going to go. And so I, I get there, you know, I, I do the wedding, and, and after the wedding, I'm, I'm walking through the house. Big, big house. And this guy starts walking towards me across the room. Now, I've noticed this guy. He's got this, like, straw brim hat on. He looks very, you know, holy. Uh, and I noticed him because he sat on this table with this group of people on the side of the room, and they stayed away from everybody else. And I instantly go, oh, that's the religious people. Because they sit over on the side. And, they, and what they do is, is they, they don't want to get too close to it because that, that sin might just fall over on them or something. You know? So they stay away from everybody and they hide over in the corner. Oh, my goodness, I might get something on me. I, I don't want that to happen. And so, and so he comes walking towards me. I'm like, okay, here we go. And he, and he shows up and, and he says, he says uh, how are you doing, Pastor? And I go, okay, fine. How are you doing? You know? And he goes, I'm really sorry about this. And I go, about what? I said, light beer? You shouldn't be sorry about the light beer. Light beer is awful. Why would you want to drink that? You know? <laughs> which, which just kind of set the tone, you know. About where it was. Uh, and he goes, what? no, I mean about all the wild people who are here. And I go, dude, seriously, nobody's drunk. Everybody's having a good time. This is, this, is a, this is a great day to throw a party. I don't know why you guys are sitting over there. Like You should be over there talking to everybody else. He's, yeah, that was it. You know, we, we were done. But but, see, but Christians, we, they, they, we seem to have this religious and holier they're at, and we've got to, you know, we, we can't get connect with those people because, oh, my goodness, what, what's going to happen? I, th- this is really interesting when it comes to people who have problems in their marriages. People go to, go to a church, and they're like, oh, I've got to get it all figured out and, and straightened out for it. Let me ask you a question. Uh, who in here is married? Raise your hand. Okay. 
Weave it up. Come on. Okay. Now, put your hand down if you have never fought with your spouse. Ah, see? Everybody. Okay, you can put them down now. Okay? Everybody's in the same boat. I mean, you show up to church and someone's like in the parking lot and they're in an argument. And you walk in and go, man, I'm glad I'm not married to him. You know? And, you know, seriously, people are like, probably they're glad I'm not married to you. You know? <laughs> My... My wife, we get in some fights sometimes, you know, because I'm normal. And, uh, and so we fight. And my, wife's, <laughs> my wife will look at me and she'll be like, and she'll start laughing at me. I'm like, don't laugh at me. I'm mad, you know. <laughs> she, she, she just laughs at me, which, which I think is great. But all too often we look at people and think, oh, look, they got problems. There must be something wrong. Everybody's got issues. Everybody. Everybody. And when we get these judgmental attitudes about other people and we think that we're not in the same boat, we are. We are all in that same boat. I thought I crack a joke up here every once in a while or I say an unacceptable word and people get really mad at me. We all have this code. And it's like someone crosses a line or they violate our code and then we pick up our stones and we hold them and we're ready to throw them. I mean, this woman, it's like, oh, she's caught in adultery. Did you hear? What a shame. Oh, her poor kids. Oh, what the late. You know, they act so concerned. But inside, they're just seething. It's like, oh, I never liked her anyway. She's more attractive than me. We got the same genes, and her butt looks way better than mine. Yeah? <laughs> they, they, they act like, like they're... It's like if you have something you really like to do, and someone's better at it than you, you're like, I don't like them, just because. Philip Yancey wrote a book called What's So Amazing About Grace? And he writes this in the book. He says, A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, and able to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a whole night. She says she, has to, she had to do it to support her own drug habit. She goes, I can hardly bear hearing this sort of story. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. See, it's amazing. In ancient times, women like this would run to Jesus. Jesus wouldn't condone the sin at all. But they would run to him because they knew that Jesus wanted the best for their soul. And today, they run from his followers. I mean, what would it be like if we didn't pick up stones and we let Jesus be the judge and we live simply as he called us to live? The stone throwers say this to Jesus. We're actually going to get through the text today, I promise. Verse 5. It says, In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. I think, what do you say? Jesus does this bizarre thing. It's like, what do you say? And he goes, He's crazy. I just... That's what I love about Jesus. He's just nuts, you know. I mean, and when I say crazy, in a good way, he's crazy about us. And, I mean, so, so he bends down. He starts to write on the ground. It's the only place in Scripture where Jesus is actually ever shown to write. We don't know what he's writing, but apparently it's bothering the, the stone throwers. I mean, they're like flipping out sideways, and he's like, okay. you know, and he starts writing on the ground. Uh, so they keep pressing him. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He's like, go ahead, but one rule. Let the one without sin go first. <laughs> this is risky. This is very risky for somebody to do this. I mean, because when you get self-righteous religious people, someone's bound to go, well, I don't sin. Boom, and there goes a rock. 
Now, there's a whole lot of speculation in here about, you know, what is Jesus actually writing on the ground at this point? Well, in, in Roman law, a judge would actually write out, you know, the crime and the sentence, and then he would read it. And so they would say, well, Jesus was writing this down. Adultery equals, equals death. And so Jesus was showing that he was the only one who had the right to judge. Other people say, uh, no, he wrote the, probably wrote the Ten Commandments. You know, don't commit adultery and stuff like that. Some people think he's just doodling. That's what I would do. I'd be like, I, I, I can make a happy face. And that's about all I got. Okay, just, I got a happy face. And one idea goes back to the 5th century that says that Jesus was writing the sins of the leaders of that group. So, you know, it's like watching out the window longer than he had to to get a glimpse of her boobs. You know, oh, watching a little too long because you like the peep show. You know, or setting someone up in order for them to be killed. You know, whatever he is writing, he confronts them with this decision. Pass judgment, but you have to be sinless which makes us realize that fallen people are in no position to throw stones at other people. What I really like, if Jesus is actually writing down their sins, on, it's, it's on sand, and it's easily erased. And this amazing thing happens in verse 9. It says, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So someone drops their stone, then someone else, and the older, the wiser ones actually leave first. Maybe their hearts melt a little bit. Maybe they remember what it's like to need forgiveness themselves. Philip Yancey, he says, In the group there were two categories, sinners, the woman, and righteous, the men. Yet Jesus, in one set of words, replaces the two categories with two of his own, sinners who admit and sinners who deny, because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we look at a passage like this, typically people think, well, I'm like the woman, I'm a victim, or uh, I'm like Jesus, I'm just holy and everything. You know what we're supposed to see ourselves as? The men. We are just like the men in this story. I mean, the question for you and me is, do you have stones you need to let go of? Do you have condemnation and, and judgment? These things are so rooted in us as people, it's hard to recognize it, much less let go of. When someone does something against us, we have to let them know we disapprove. If we don't have the guts to actually talk to them, we tell everybody else how we disapprove about what this person did. Yet in Romans 8.1, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what do you and I need to let go of? I mean, maybe you hold something against your, your spouse. Maybe your wife backed out of the garage two weeks ago and, and broke the mirror on the side of your car because you can't pull out of the garage right. Or that's just me. <laughs> you know, what, what, do you need, what do you need to let go of? Do you hold something against your spouse? Do you hold something against your, your parents? You know, do, you, do you maybe have a friend or a boss or a neighbor or an ex that you hold something against? Maybe somebody hurt you. Maybe they hurt you and you're holding on to this. You need to put down your stone because that stone's only hurting you. I mean, if, if this happens and then you get very angry and, and you have spread gossip, you need to go and apologize. If your heart is hard towards somebody, then, and you just you can't get around it, do an act of service for them. You, know, you show up at their house and you're like cleaning their car. You're like, "Why are you doing that?" And you're like, "Cause I hate you." You know, <laughs> can't handle this. I mean, if you if you have been a jerk towards somebody, you need to go to them. You need to apologize, even if they will never apologize to you, because that is what you are called to do. You are about the ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation. That is your job description as a believer. Don't let stones become so bad you don't even notice them. And acceptance is not the same thing as approval, but acceptance is much more than toleration. Some of us just tolerate people, and yet Jesus, he's a, he's a magnet for people because Jesus loved people. 
There used to be this old saying, and nobody's heard it except for me, apparently, and I said it in both services, but it says, all stars don't ride on the bus with the third stringers. Anybody heard that? Okay. Yes, one person heard it. This is, this is great. Messed up people come to the only sinless person ever, and he accepts them. Jesus is the only all-star. We're all third stringers. And yet he rides the bus with us, which is good. Acceptance is an act of the heart. It says that a good is a good thing that somebody is alive. You can communicate that to somebody, I think, in hundreds of ways, but I think some of the best ways is offering wisdom, patience, listening. This woman finds Jesus, and he is the only person who doesn't turn her away. Jesus is the only one who could really become a stone thrower because he's the only one that has a right to. And yet he says in verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus like you and these guys. You're really not that different at all. Is there no one left to condemn you? No one. Me neither. No condemnation. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop there. There's one more thing. I think he says words, and these words cut her deep to the heart because they show her that he knows all about her life, all about what she's been doing, all about her past. But they also show that Jesus believes in her. I think these words will remain with her the rest of her life, and hopefully she will find a way to reconcile with her husband. She will have kids and grandchildren and around her feet, and she'll remember these words that Jesus says in verse 11. It says, Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. See, acceptance is not tolerating or condoning bad behavior. Uh, it does not mean you watch your friend make, make bad choices that could wreck their life. You know, accepting doesn't mean you refuse to confront or challenge somebody with, when they're doing something that could damage their soul. I think failure to confront sometimes is just as bad as being judgmental. But Jesus comes and he accepts this woman, he forgives her, and he says, Go now and leave your life of sin. This is sin, and it has to stop. And by Jesus doing this, this cost him dearly. cost him his life. These men are angry, and they're going to come back later with a lot of vengeance. Kenneth Bailey writes this. He says, they'll be back with a bigger stick. Jesus is in the process of getting hurt because of what he is doing for her. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus' acceptance, it, it is free and undeserved, but it's also very demanding of our lives. Because at this point now, she has to examine that. Why did Jesus accept me? What, what does this mean? Why does Jesus think it's a good thing for me to be alive? And then she has to take that and go and enter into the new way of life that Jesus calls her to, a life that's away from her sin. Radical acceptance in this woman's life did what condemnation couldn't. It made her change her life and adopt the way of Jesus. Not for you and I this morning. We too have to be those people. We must examine our lives daily because sometimes we don't even know when we're holding stones. We have been accepted. Jesus wants the best for our souls. We need to adopt the way of Jesus and live in the way that he calls us to. And when we do that, we can actually learn to be people who offer hope to the world instead of condemnation. We can be those who truly want the best for other people's souls. We can be those who finally learn how to drop our stones. I had a guy come to me after second service today. And he said, I got a lot of stuff with my dad. He goes, and I can't even think about my dad without thinking about these things. And this guy is now a dad himself. And I'm like, well, how does that affect your life with your son? He goes, he goes well, you know, I don't have a good relationship with my dad. And I think that, and I said, yeah. And who are those stones hurting? And he goes, they're hurting my kid. And they're hurting me. I said, exactly. Exactly. We need to be a people who are about reconciliation and grace, not condoning sin, 
but living in such a way that people know that God wants the best for their souls. And he has given us that ministry to people to let them know that. That's why we come to communion every single week, because communion is all about hope. I mean, th- these guys come back and they, and they kill Jesus, and this is what communion represents. The, the cracker represents his body that was broken for us. And so when you take a piece of that cracker, you break it. Snap, like his body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, which is representative of his blood that was shed for you and I. And then, and then we take that and remember that that gives us hope because Jesus accepted us. He wiped us clean, forgave our sins, set us on a path so that we can now be about his business. And worship God through prayer. There'll be some elders and deacons in the back of the room. And if you have stones and you just can't let go of them, go pray with them. They'd love to pray with you about letting go of those stones. If you don't know Jesus and you're living in a place and you want to understand and know this radical acceptance that Jesus has of you of wanting the best for your soul, then pray with them because they'd love to introduce you to him as well. The band's going to come back up. And as they do, we're going to sing some songs. And these songs remind us and refocus us about who God is and what he has done. Not because we are so good, but because he is good. We worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall, and then there's offering boxes in the very back of the room. And we give because God gave to us. We give because he gave everything. Then we worship God through fellowship. You, I mean, fellowship is not just the people in this room, although it's a good place to start, but fellowship is out there. Again, the ministry of dropping stones and reconciliation is about you living your life there, missionally, to people. You know, there's, there's a whole saying that, you know, you might be the only Jesus people ever see. And you know what? It's an amazing thing in Scripture that Jesus is okay with that because he believes that you can do it through his strength. I mean, we are called his body. God wants a body, and we're that body. And so we live so people see him and his goodness and his grace. So my admonition for you guys this morning, drop your stones. Be about reconciliation. Be about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would help us to be those who understand what reconciliation is about, that we'd be those who learn how to truly drop our stones and take up your calling. God, I ask that you would, when we have those judgmental attitudes, when we have uh, those, those thoughts and we have resentment against others, that you would help us to take a step back and remember that we have been forgiven just as much. Father, I ask that you would help us to let you be the judge, to let you be God, and that we would learn to truly live and walk in your strength and your hope because you are good and you've accepted and loved and forgiven us and steered us away from our lives of sin. Help us to believe in that radical acceptance of you. So we live reflecting your light to this world. Amen.